2 Thessalonians 2 is our text today. We'll look in one way or the other at the whole chapter, 2 Thessalonians 2, starting with verse 1. Second Thessalonians 2, 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord for his help today in hearing his word to us. Our Lord God and Father, we we look forward with anticipation to the day when we would see you to the great day of Christ's return, that this passage and others in in these Thessalonian letters have spoken of, that to that end, that you'd help us today to grasp what you would have us to see and hear in your word that's before us. We thank you for it, and we pray for us that we'd hear your voice in it even now, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're entering the the home stretch and dealing with the letters to the Thessalonians. There's, There's this second chapter of Second Thessalonians that we'll look at today, and then that leaves us just next time with, uh, we'll wrap up the third chapter in a few weeks from now in October. The first chapter of this second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians dealt with his concern for them in the realm of persecution that they continued to face for their faith in Christ Jesus. But now in this second chapter of Second Thessalonians, he comes to something where it appears to be written to address Paul's concern for the impact that they would feel of false teaching, some some manner of false teaching that they had received, false teaching especially about the return of the Lord. And what he's ultimately doing here is, as we'll see today, is encouraging them 
not to fall for the lie. Don't believe the lie. Don't be deceived. But he's encouraging them to stand firm and hold to the truth. So, see, someone had been teaching them something other than the truth about the return of the Lord. And look what he says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. By any of those means, don't be alarmed, he says, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. So someone, and you see Paul there has all the possible means covered, doesn't he? Someone, either by a fake letter or by some means of teaching, some false teaching, someone had deceived the church at Thessalonica into thinking that Paul had said or that Paul taught that Christ had already returned, that the day of the Lord has come already. Remember, in 1 Thessalonians, they were concerned that people had died before the day of the Lord came. Now, they seem to be hearing that Paul has taught that the day of the Lord has come already. And Paul's writing to refute that and to encourage them and us that not only has that great, great day not come yet, but that it will come, that evil will not prevail. There will be evil, but it will not prevail. And that theirs and our lives, in the meantime, are secure in the Lord. We can trust in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. And this is what Paul is talking about here. Now, when you look at verses 3 and 4, you see, among other things in there, a description of a very evil person who is to come. The man of lawlessness, he is called. He is, verse, then to verse 3, the son of destruction. Verse 4, it says he's opposed to and exalts himself against every good, every god or object of worship. Then in verse 4, he takes his seat in the temple of God. Also in verse 4, he proclaims himself to be God. And what Paul is saying here is that that day of the Lord, the return of Christ, will not happen until after that man is revealed in the course of history. Now, to get too wrapped up in trying to figure out who exactly this man is, and throughout history, the church has done that. And you can see church history is replete with, okay, now we know who he is. It's the Pope. It's whoever. Uh, the Reformers were convinced it was, a, it was the Pope. And then the Pope was convinced it was Luther. Okay, so throughout history, people have, have tried to do that without getting too wrapped up in exactly who this is. It's, it's, it, that's to get wrapped up in that, is to miss the main point. Which was for Paul, the main point was to reassure them that this day of the Lord had not come yet. You didn't miss it, as these false teachers were saying. He's saying they're exposed as false teachers by the fact that they don't know. They don't know. They don't know that there had to first be these first prior signs of the Lord's coming that had to happen first. He says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? In other words, don't, don't you remember I told you this? I told you about this. can't believe you fell for this. I told you about it. So apparently part of him preaching the gospel to them in the short time he had been with them had also included some detailed teaching on the events leading up to the return of Christ. Details beyond those we see him refer to uh, back in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following. Remember there in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, he said, but we do, don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse uh, 
15, for this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He's saying, I've already told you this. You're fully aware of this kind of thing. There he had referred to those things in terms of the returning day of the Lord. But now back here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 5, back in our text, he seems to be saying he talked to them also about these other things regarding this man, this man of lawlessness, and his relation to the day of the Lord. And he's saying, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by the fools. They don't know these things. You do, he says. You do. I taught these things to you. You know the signs of the coming day of the Lord. But that kind of begs the question about why would a false teacher, of all things a false teacher could teach, why would a false teacher tell the people in Thessalonica that the day of the Lord, which they look forward to, had already come? Why would a charlatan want to take that away from Christians? I think rather, it's rather simple, actually, when you think about it. What is our great hope? Our great hope in life? Well, ultimately in death, in life and death, we ultimately as Christians have the blessed hope that if we live some normal span of life and die, that we will in the end be with Christ, right? That's our hope in life and death. But what is our hope as it pertains only to this life? It's that in our lifetimes, we hope, we live with the hope of prior to our death, Christ returning for us, for the day of the Lord to be a great day that occurs in our lifetimes. This is, this is what we think every day, that he could return. This is our most blessed hope, even more so than seeing Christ upon our death. Our hope is to see him still sooner in this life, to see him return, to see all made right. We know it will be. We know ultimately that it will be. But we hope for it. We long for it, even in our lifetimes. So what greater way to discourage Christians who live with that hope of that great day? What greater way to discourage people than to say, you've missed that day. That day has no chance whatsoever of happening in your lifetime because it already happened. It's gone. Well, that would mess up your theology. It would mess up your eschatology. That would leave you confused and dismayed as a Christian in this life. And that's exactly the point. That's why false teachers teach this way. It's what false teachers do. They kill the joy. They kill the joy that comes with knowing Christ. They kill the joy that comes with knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that we'll spend eternity with him and that we may see him at any moment. They kill the joy and kill the joy of the truth with lies and half-truths that erode the confidence, that wreck the lives, that discourage the growth of Christians in this life, whose greatest hope, our greatest hope, is to see our Lord Jesus, the one who died for us face to face upon his return on that great day of the Lord. There's enough trouble and discouragement in this life. As great a gift as this life is, there's enough trouble for us to know that it would be a still greater gift if Christ would return, like right now, right? Like not even tomorrow, right now. We know that would be a, the greatest thing. We're assured of death being the doorway ultimately to eternal life. We're, sure, we're assured of that. 
but we live with this constant expectation in our days of living that one of those days may be the day, the great day of the Lord, when he'll return. And if we believed he wouldn't return, or if we believed he already had returned, we, we may despair of life even more so than we do if we had no hope of that rescue of perhaps seeing our Lord soon. So what false teachers try to do is remove all hope and create despair so they can control you. We know this in, times, in the times we live, don't we? Even outside the church, doesn't it seem like it's, and has accelerated this year, it seems like it's the role of some in the media, in politics, that they choose the role of sowing despair through outright falsehoods or at least spin or negative slant. Aren't many of the voices out there that we hear today clearly intent on sowing despair in our lives to give us no hope? How about this one, for example? The virus is never going to go away. The world is changed forever. We'll never shake hands or hug ever again. It's not true. It isn't true. But it creates despair to think of it, doesn't it? It creates despair to even have to deal with it like we do now, as temporarily as this may be and seem in some time from now. But the idea is to sow despair. Well, that's what false professors who don't really know what God is up to kind of always try to do. It's what these false professors of a false gospel in these days of these Thessalonians were trying to do is sow despair by saying that thing you hope for with all your being, that day of the Lord that your hope is in, yeah, that already happened. It came and went, and you missed it. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Don't let them control you with that. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Well, what things? That the man of lawlessness was to be revealed first, and then the day of the Lord. That's the truth. There could be enough despair in the prospect of living through those kinds of times that they already knew about. There could be enough despair anticipating that prospect, let alone the false prospect of then missing out on the hope of the return of the Lord. So the false teachers are trying to create despair with falsehood, and Paul says, no, stick with what you know. Stick with the truth that you know, that you heard from me. I want you to skip ahead now to verse 15, because verse 15, this is what the whole passage, I think, is actually about. Verse 15, 2 Thessalonians 2.15 so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Okay, now this is in opposition to the false teachers, right? So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Okay? This is as opposed to the word or letter or teachings of these false teachers. Listen to what apostolic teaching has taught you. When it comes to what is taught through the apostles, Stick to what we know to be true. When it comes for us to what we know to be taught through the apostles in the scriptures, the word of God, we stick with what we know to be true. As the great preacher Stephen Lawson always says, if it's new, it's not true. If it's new, it's not true. Paul says, stick with the word as we know it. Philippians 3.16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Jeremiah 6.16, look and ask for the ancient paths, for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. It's the truth you know that you need to keep coming back to. So don't be deceived by falsehood when you have truth to rely on. That's the gist of what he's saying here. It's applicable to anything. He's applying it to the coming day of the Lord. So that is the issue here. Don't be deceived 
That's most of the first three verses. That's the first thing about what this is saying, okay? This passage in the first few verses is saying, don't be deceived. Now, secondly, starting in the middle of verse three, he's said this thing, don't be deceived. Now we have an explanation of why and how this is going to go. So an explanation, this issue to not be deceived, and now the explanation, the first part of which is that evil will come, middle of verse 3, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And by the way, the rebellion has been going on since the garden, right? But unless the rebellion comes first, and he's talking about a full and final rebellion, a culmination to it, but unless that comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object, object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This does seem to describe an actual person who is to come. Notice the words, man, son, himself. He takes his seat himself again. This seems like a person, doesn't it? So it appears to be an actual person. We'll look at that in a minute. We could speculate who it is. But with all that speculation, look at the gist. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't look at the point of this whole thing. Do we need to fear this man ultimately? Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his, Jesus's, coming. So this man is utterly destroyed instantly at the coming of Jesus in the day of the Lord. So no, we don't need to fear this evil one ultimately because the Lord, as we see here, is in control. He will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, this evil one. Remember that line in a mighty fortress, right? One little word shall fell him. Well, here the Lord Jesus will defeat this evil one, not with a word, but just with his breath. He'll bring him to nothing just by appearing So if the first section to verse 3 was about not being deceived, this second section from here to verse 8 is telling us that there will be evil, but that the Lord Jesus, the sovereign one, is in control. And notice in verses 5 through 7 that it seems as though not only has Paul been telling them these things, but also they apparently know something about this that we don't. Look at verse 6. And you know, he says to the Thessalonians, you know what is restraining him now. That's this evil one. What is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. That's the restrainer. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Well, what is, he's telling them that they know something that we don't. What is it that they know that we don't? Well, we, we don't know. He seems to be cloaking what he's saying here. He's saying, you know but he's not telling us exactly spelling it out. They know what is restraining that man of lawlessness now because Paul has told them there's something restraining him, something Paul has told them that he isn't telling us, and he just says, you know. If if you have a Reformation study Bible or a New Geneva study Bible, the note there at this point says that because this restraining power is described both as impersonal, as a what in verse 6, and as personal, as a he in verse 7, that this could mean something like an institution that can also be represented by an individual. So there is someone or something, some institution maybe, restraining this evil one who is definitely a someone, 
but it seems mysterious how Paul is describing here, it here. So what is it that restrains him, number one, and who is he, number two, are the two questions without answers here. Well, first, what is it that, what's the restraint? What might that be? Well, there have been a few interesting possibilities posed throughout church history on what this restrainer might be. But a couple of those don't quite fit with the fact that he mentions that they know that he taught them about it, but he doesn't want to seem to refer directly to it. Let me tell you what I mean. Which was sometimes biblically the way apostles referred to things in order to make it less obvious to government authorities that may be reading. Much like if you've ever seen a missionary letter from someone in, say, a country that has outlawed Christianity in our time, you'll get these, we've gotten them, and, and that missionary may speak in code to us back home about the ministry in order to vo- avoid being too overt and being found out by the government. They may speak of converts as friends or to God only as the Father or something like that. There seems to be a sense in which Paul is doing something similar here by being somewhat vague and saying, you know. And I think that helps us to narrow down the possibilities about who or what is doing the restraining here, because some have suggested that this restraining power could be the church and the Holy Spirit. So the institution, the church, and the person, the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in the church would be the restrainer. He who restrains would be the Holy Spirit, and what is restraining is is the church. Well, that sounds good, but it doesn't quite fit the context for a couple of reasons. One problem with this idea is that according to the middle of verse 7 and into verse 8, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So do we want to say that the Holy Spirit in the church will be restraining this person until the Holy Spirit and the church are out of the way, and then the lawless one will come? Now, that wouldn't fit with prior teaching that the church would still be on earth when Christ returns. He says right in verse 3 that the day of the Lord won't come until after that man is revealed and does all these horrible things. So that doesn't quite fit. And then another problem with that is that, with this being the Holy Spirit in the church, is that Paul didn't seem too shy about writing about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, even in those very early letters. So why would he seem to cloak it here? That's what we're keying on here is he seems to kind of cloak what he's saying. So that's the first possibility. But a second one uh, that is maybe that Paul is talking about himself and the preaching of the gospel. Maybe that is what restrains the revealing of the man of lawlessness. So a number of church fathers, including John Calvin, held this view, that it was Paul and the preaching of the gospel that was a great restrainer to this man of evil. That's what... Um, That's what Paul, uh, they're, they're saying is teaching here. But the problem here, again, is that Paul, again, is never shy in these letters or any of other's letters about the gospel. So why would he write cryptically about it here? And also, do we really want to think that Paul thought that the revealing of the rebellion hinged on him being removed from the scene? And, and actually, it didn't, because to this day, this particular full revelation of the man of lawlessness and the rebellion has not occurred. So the church and the Holy Spirit don't seem to fit, and Paul and the preaching of the gospel don't seem to fit as what is restraining. And that leads us to a third possibility, which seems the most likely, because what institution and who would Paul want to speak cryptically of in a letter? It would be Rome. It would be Rome. It would be the Roman authorities. So it's most likely that what Paul is referring to, we don't know for sure, but the thing that most people have landed on is that Paul may be referring here as restraining the utter evil of the man of lawlessness from being revealed. 
what he needs what needs to be removed in order for him to be revealed is Rome and the power of the state and not just Rome because it doesn't stop with Rome John Stott points out that if Paul means Rome and the power of the state if that's what he was telling him you know it's that kind of thing that's restraining the evil for now then this restrainer doesn't have to be limited to Rome it can go on and on even to our time which it has which makes sense. So that, quoting from Stott now, John Stott, he says, every state being the guardian of law and order, public peace and justice meets the case equally well. Let me read that again. Every state being the basically God-ordained guardian of law and order, public peace and justice meets the case equally well. What is restraining this rebellion and this evil from getting out of control? It's the fact that God has put governments in charge of things to make sure that that doesn't happen, that there's a restraining influence. And what is it that breaks down in every society? It's this, the power of the state to be the God-ordained restrainer of evil. It breaks down, and it's happening even in our own country right now, isn't it? It breaks down. It is ultimately God who restrains evil, but he's ordained that it would be through the state and through government. This power of the state as the restrainer is the most likely thing that Paul means because it is the one thing that goes on and on throughout history, and it breaks down all the time. So this passage becomes the most universally applicable as we go on and on in history until it finally and ultimately breaks down catastrophically and all restraints are off for the unleashing of the quiet rebellion that has been going on all along underneath to take over fully and finally with ultimately this man of lawlessness who comes on the scene. Which leads us to this. Who is this guy? Who is this man of lawlessness? Like I said earlier, every generation has their candidate, right? The best answer we have is we have no idea other than he will fit the bill of what we see in these verses and other places, a conglomeration of characteristics that are shades of the past. For instance, end of verse three says he's a son of destruction. Just right in there, son of destruction. Who does that sound like? That's what Jesus called Judas, son of destruction. So maybe this one to come is someone who initially portrays himself as close to the Lord, some sort of pseudo-religious figure. And this man also, verse 4 says, opposes God and exalts himself. He wants to be worshipped. That implies what Satan did, exalted himself above God, Satan did, right? So you see this kind of thing in every political ruler who runs amok. They insist on themselves and the government being worshipped rather than God. What's helpful as we navigate all this uncertainty about who this is in verses 3 through 8 is to know that probably, most likely, when Paul refers to having taught them this kind of thing already, I think he's very likely referring to the content of where he taught them being from Matthew's gospel, the content of Matthew 24, part of which was our New Testament reading. There's a sense in which what Paul is teaching here in 2 Thessalonians 2, and really 1st and 2 Thessalonians overall, in terms of the coming of the Lord, there's a sense in which what he's teaching here about this man of lawlessness and the times in which he will come onto the scene is kind of in Thessalonians in miniature what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 24, which also then refers back to Daniel's teaching on the end times. If you take and compare these, do this later on your own, Matthew 24 and this chapter here in Thessalonians, put them side by side and see the similar themes you will see. Jesus talked more about them. That's why I said Paul does it in miniature here. 
but you'll see very similar things in terms of rebellion, deception, and judgment. So Paul has probably been teaching these people what Jesus taught in Matthew 24 and then expounding upon that with them when he says, you know, I taught you. There's another characteristic of this man is that also says in verse 4 that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And the person most often associated with this, and this is probably who Paul wants us to think of, he wants the original readers to think of and wants us to think of, because it's who Jesus and Daniel before him was talking about, was a man prophesied about, at least in part, of what he did that came true in, in, in Daniel 11.31 is referred to as the abomination of desolation, who turned out to be at least prefigured in a man named Aristarchus Epiphanes, a Syrian king who in 169 BC, in at least partial uh, fulfillment of this prophecy of Daniel's, entered the Jewish Holy of Holies, erected an altar to Zeus, and sacrificed a pig on it a total desecration of the temple. This is the kind of guy, kind of like the worst, kind of like the Hitler of his time, the worst you can think of, who is brought up. This is the kind of guy that's brought up as an example of what the man of lawlessness will be. There are always candidates in history as to horrifically evil rulers come and go. There's always candidates for this man of lawlessness. So this is someone who basically desecrates religious worship of God, which is why, and we now get back to the gist of the passage, which is why Paul says, church, don't fall for false teaching. <laughs> That's the idea. Don't, just don't fall for it. Um, ultimately, whoever this man of lawlessness is, he's going to desecrate and, and operate from some sort of church, some sort of religious standpoint. He's going to deceive people, maybe even people who think they are religious. So you see it even now, how, how ideologies, any ideologies, become religions, basically. Things that aren't even we would consider as religions. Ideologies become religions. And he's going to deceive the people with this sort of thing. He'll deceive the people, but he won't be able to touch another kind of people. There's one kind of person that he's going to deceive, and then there's other people that he won't, and that's what the rest of the passage is about. Those who are the deceived are in verses 9 through 12. And then there are the ones who aren't deceived, the chosen ones, the saved ones in verses 13 to 15. That's the rest of the passage. Look at the ones who follow this man of lawlessness. The ones who fall for the false signs and wonders that we read about in verse 9. Verse 10 says that the ones who fall for this are deceived. They're perishing. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11 says they're deluded and believe what is false. Verse 12, they're condemned. They did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. These are the ones who are deceived. These are the ones from whom this man of lawlessness will derive his power and win the day. He derives his power from Satan, but he deceives people who go along with him, who think this way, who live this way, who believe, do not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Those are the ones who are deceived, but who are the ones who are saved? Verse 13, by contrast, says this. Verse 13, but we ought always, we, we Christians, we Thessalonians, we, you and me, we Christians in our day ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to, to, to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. The ones who are saved are the called, the ones called to glory, the ones who are called and who respond. 
This is the doctrine of effectual call. Effectual call. There's a general call. God calls all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. All men and women, boys and girls, are called generally. But then among those, there are those for whom the call is effectual. The call hits the mark of the heart, and those who respond to that call and believe and are saved, sanctified, and who will see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who are the beneficiaries of the effectual call. This is a wonderful doctrine. We could preach a whole sermon about this, but why does Paul talk about effectual calling? We were talking about this man of lawlessness and all this negative stuff, and then we get to effectual calling. Why does Paul talk about effectual calling and this man of lawlessness in the same breath, basically. Why why do that? Could there be any more disconnected subjects in a chapter of the Bible or even in a single sermon on that chapter of the Bible? Well, actually, they are related. Because what was behind Paul's treatment of the subject of this man of lawlessness in the day of the Lord? It was a misunderstanding based on a false teaching that they may have missed the day of the Lord and missed the return of Jesus. And if you could miss the return of Jesus, maybe that could mean you could lose your salvation. And that is something that can work against our Christian joy in this life. That kind of falsehood, that kind of thing that isn't true. We're told to expect the return of Jesus. And we may be anxious to be certain of our salvation when he does return. But we have to know we cannot lose the salvation that Christ has wrought in us by his blood. So there's a sense in which Paul is, after he's told him all of this, he's trying to get them to the point where they understand, but God has chosen you. God will keep you. There's an inseparable link between trusting in Christ now in this life and with our future gathering with him on this great day of the Lord. Listen to what Jesus says about this from John 6. John 6, 37 and following, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. So there is this connection here between the fact that God has called some not to be deceived, but to be recipients of eternal life when Christ returns for his own whether that be in this life or after our death, our destination is glory. Well, finally, how do we apply the truths we learn in this passage to our lives? Three very brief things. First, if God can go to all this detail in this passage about this man of lawlessness, for God to know exactly what time and what has to happen before he comes, for God to control all the history that it takes to make this happen, and all the sovereign control of governments and nations to provide those restraining forces for all these centuries, to keep this man back until the time God appoints. If God controls all that, and he does, if God controls all that, and he does, then don't you think then that he can control your life? Can't he control every little bit of your life? He can and he does. Michael Card, who's always so good at boiling down the essence of Scripture to songs that help us to keep that Scripture in our hearts, says this in the song called The Poem of Your Life. He says, God shapes every second of our little lives and minds every minute 
as the universe waits by. God's in control of all of that. He certainly can be in control of everything in our lives. So that's the first thing God controls, even every aspect of your life. Secondly, Paul says in verse 5, remember, I told you these things. But we don't know exactly what he told them about all of that. Well, there's a lesson there in there for us to heed in all that we don't know exactly of what he told them. And that lesson is to turn the opposite and say, yes, there are things we don't know. But just think of what we do know. All the promises of Scripture, all God will do and has done, His work and His promises fulfilled to people of the past are what the Bible's full of, right? God is continually making and keeping promises. And He makes those same promises to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will bring you home. I will protect and preserve your very soul. I will do all this because you are so precious to me, so precious to have bought you with the precious blood of Christ, God says. Do you think I'm going to forsake you now? My love for you is everlasting, God says. But we need to grasp those promises, especially in these times in which we live. These are desperate times in a cruel world, aren't they? And there is so much we don't know, even mysterious things in the scriptures that we don't fully understand. But God is greater still, and he's promised us so much that we do know that we need to grasp onto those things and pray for strength. And I think that's what Paul is saying. Grasp on and hang on to those things you do, do know and pray for the strength to trust him more and more in the things that we do know and trust him more and more in the troubled days to come. And then lastly, isn't the doctrine of effectual call the greatest thing to think about? The God who knows all this and who does all this cares enough for us to call us to salvation and then awakens our dead souls to respond to that call? That is a great thing to think about. People who don't like this doctrine always want to talk about how unfair it is to those who don't answer the call. But to see it that way is to miss the wonder and joy of knowing a God who would bother to effectually call anyone, much less our poor lost selves. But he has. And so we can live lives of rejoicing and gratitude for the one who loves as we look forward to the soon return of the one who loves and will love us to the end and then pick up loving us forevermore in eternity with him. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this brief look at this packed portion of your word and for what it shows us of your control over all things, of your intimate knowledge of detail, and the promise it holds out to us of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we live the lives you've given us to your glory and as shining examples of what you do in the grateful lives of those you've effectually chosen to love you and who long for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose holy name we pray. Amen.